G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Hi, it's Neil Johnson. Welcome to today's 2020 podcast. Remember, you can hear 2020 on the Vision Radio Network from 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Time. That's from 11 Eastern Daylight Saving Time on Vision Weekdays. The life story of our next guest is a truly epic, classic Aussie story. She went from small-town country Australia to being swept off her feet by Hollywood heartthrob Gregory Peck and for 60 years uniquely influenced hundreds of thousands of young Australians. June Daly Watkins remains proud to be a bushy at heart and for most of her outwardly glamorous life she also hid a deeply painful side of her life an entire world away from her public persona. Her enormous success and influence as a pioneer in etiquette and deportment she attributes to two simple things, love and care. Lee Hatcher begins his conversation with June Daly Watkins by asking her why love and care and where did it come from. Well, if you don't have love and love yourself and care for yourself, I think you'll be very empty and very unhappy. I believe that all human beings should love and care the person who lives inside them and then that will help them to give love and care to other human beings. And people who don't have love and care for themselves and other people, you can see it in their faces. You can see it, hear it in the tone of their voice. And it works. Yes, it does. It does work. People need to be loved and cared for. And that's why I just am so happy what I do. And after 62 and a half years, I'm still doing it. This morning I was in my office at 8.15 and love it. Great stuff. (laughs) June, can I take you back to Watson's Creek in northern New South Wales where you were born and grew up? Yes. Your mother was an enormously influential woman in your life. Tell us about what she was like. My mother had to stay at Watson's Creek to care for me until I was old enough for her to leave with me. She always wanted me to be the best I could be because she'd say, June, if you don't present yourself well in life, you won't be successful in life. And so she would always just flick me on the top of the arm and say, June, don't talk like that. June, don't say that. June, don't do that. You have to be the best. If you want to do well in life, if you want to be successful in life, you really have to be the best you can be. Why do you think she wanted you to be so successful? Because she'd had a very lonely sad life. She gave up her life for me and stayed at this funny little deserted mining village called Watson's Creek and stayed with my grandparents where she helped run the property and cooked for them. She was very beautiful and a delightful lady and she missed out on her opportunity in life and she didn't want that to happen to me. She wanted me to make up for what she'd lost. 
your grandfather set the lead for manners and etiquette. Oh, my grandfather was a wonderful man. I loved him. He was always strict with me, always wanted me to write well and to read well and study. He was always a gracious. He was a tin miner. And then he was allotted some land and he turned that into a sheep farm. A great story. <laughs> your first introduction to the world of glamour that defined your life came in a mail order catalogue at the Watson's Creek post office. <laughs> yes. I walked two and a half kilometres to a one-teacher bush girl and to go to the post office was an isolated house where I had to walk nearly another half a mile to get there. The mail would be handed out from old Mrs. House hole in the wall that she cut and the mail orders catalogue started to come from farmers department store in Sydney and there were models way back then. What did that do to you? I wanted to be one of those <laughs> and I thought ah oh, if I could ever get to Sydney I wonder where Sydney is and I would copy the poses of the models light the candle in front of the mirror and pose and copy what I saw there and think that's my dream if I could ever get there but then the Woman's Weekly started to come and I read about movie stars and Hollywood and I thought that'll be better and I would be so dumb I'd go out at night and look at the stars and millions of stars up there at Watson's Creek and I'd think that how would I ever be a movie star I wonder on which star is Hollywood oh really how would I ever get there beautiful yes dumb I was dumb I heard the school teachers say that to my mother one day I heard dumb yes she he said Junie will be a failure in life. She will never make it. Well, you proved him wrong. Yeah, he said, all she does is sit and look out the window all day and daydream. Well, that, that wasn't a bad thing after no. all, no. Daydreaming is wonderful. You're in a way discovered simply walking down the street in Tamworth, weren't you? <laughs> yes. One day we were walking down Peel Street in Tamworth and this gentleman came to my mother and said, I'm a photographer and I'd love to take photographs of your daughter. He said to my mother, you should take Junie to Sydney. I think she'd make a great model. How old were you then, June? I was 13. <laughs> wow. So your mother takes you to Sydney, and when I hear of the adventure on which you two embarked, it sounds so wonderful, so innocent, yeah. maybe even naive, yeah. yet brimming with ambition. And we had nothing. My mother and I had no money. My mother had to sing a sewing machine. So when we came down, we went and took a little room at Kensington and she made clothes for people. That's how she made the money. And that's when she took me to farmers. <laughs> and what did she say to farmers? Well, she did the talking because I wasn't bright enough to do that. I didn't have the confidence. And they looked at me and they said, oh, well, would she like to model a hat for our catalogue? Tomorrow, And I'm thinking, everyone in Watson's Creek will see me. And my mother was thinking of how much money I'd make. And they said, oh, it's 10 shillings and sixpence. It's a lot of money. In <laughs> a half days. a dollar. Yes. <laughs> and that was a lot of money. Yes. June, do you think you would have made it as a model today? No. In a, in a different era? 
No, I was a bit too plump. I, you what know, you I was mean? the country girl, yes. fresh and wholesome, not skinny as they are now. Yes. And um, I was five feet six inches tall. You have to be five feet ten or nearly six, six feet tall yes. these days. Yeah. So I would have been too short and I wouldn't have been skinny enough. <laughs> but within a very short time, you were model of the year in Australia's yeah. most photographed yes. model. Yes. What a dizzying ride that must have been. Oh, my mother and I went up to Watson's Creek for Christmas and we went over to the post office and the newspaper arrived and there was a photograph of Junie and it said, voted Australia's most photographed model. And I was at Watson's Creek when that happened. And amidst this, you remained and remain to this day a proud bushy, as I said before, oh, I and am. well able to still give oh, us a bushy accent. I will never forget that I grew up at Watson's Creek, yeah. just come back from Hong Kong, and the lady stopped me. She said, are you from England? She said, I've heard you speaking and you sound very English. And I said, no, I come from Australia. And she said, you don't sound Australian. And I said, oh, mate, I can be an Australian. I can talk stride like anybody else from Australia. You're well bred for it, yes. The very next year after you become Model of the Year, your mum comes up with this idea of a school of deportment, yeah. Australia's first, but she didn't want it to be one of the charm schools yeah. that was springing up in London and New York. Why not? Yes. And what was her vision? Yes. She said, I've heard of charm schools why don't you start one? And she said, I wouldn't want it to be a charm school, though. It has to be real, not just charm, because that would be too shallow. When all my girlfriends were going out and having a good time and marrying the rich young men, I was there putting together a program that I thought it was needed, a personal development and it's still going, 62 and a half years later. Had you come up with the phrase, how to start the day the Dally way. Yes. Which involved what? It starts showering, taking care of our skin, use with lovely skin care. I use baby cream. I say to our students, if it's good for babies, it has to be good for our skin. Yes. Underarm deodorant. And then to dress themselves in a way that's very acceptable, not this common way now that I see of short shorts and short skirts and plunging necklines and those stiletto heels which they're falling off. Yes. And I wanted our students to have style. Fashion changes every seasonally, but style goes on forever. And it style gives quality and it makes a female look like a lady, and style, it's the same for a gentleman. Gentlemen, men come now. They come because their parents make them come, because you know what the Aussie bloke's likely. He said, oh, I don't need that. I want to just go out and be with me mates. But when their parents make them come, they have pride in themselves. Yes, I'm sure they do. Mm. Where did you get all these ideas from? <laughs> because you were a pioneer for all this. Yes. In my brain, it's all that thinking, walking to and from that yes. one teacher bush school. I was always dreaming and imagining. After I did that photograph for the magazine for farmers, then my mother said, June, my daughter would love to be in your mannequin parades. 
So I didn't really know how to be a mannequin, but I watched the other models. So I thought about posture and the turns and how to put the clothes together. We had to do our own makeup. And so I put all those things that helped towards my success as a model and a mannequin. <laughs> I put them, wrote them all down and developed a course. And that's still the same one. You were both very ambitious, weren't you? Oh, my mother was ambitious. She knew that she had to encourage me to do well in life. Otherwise, I might be just stuck back there in Watson's Creek the way she was, with no life. And you caught it. Oh, I did. Yes. She encouraged me to have a dream, to imagine, to look at those stars and think of what might be. They, all I had was dreaming and imagining, and I still do that. And what a world awaited you. We're with June Daly Watkins, and in just a moment she finds Hollywood, Gregory Peck, and we talk about first that deeply painful side of her life that she decides to finally own up to and deal with in the midst of embracing Christian faith. You're listening to the 2020 podcast from the Vision Radio Network. We return now to the conversation that Lee Hatcher has been having with one of Australia's living legends, June Daly Watkins. For more than 60 years, she has uniquely influenced hundreds of thousands of young Australians. Ms Daly Watkins exposes the deeply painful side of her life and says her success all comes down to love and care. We pick up the conversation as Lee asks June about some of her experiences rubbing shoulders with the likes of Gregory Peck and Marilyn Monroe. June, at the age of 25, you embark on Australia's first fashion show to the US. I wonder how a girl who still had not <laughs> long been out of Watson's Creek, how do you deal with a culture shock? Suddenly you're at Marilyn Monroe's birthday party. <laughs> but the fashion show I took was a one-woman fashion yes, show, just yes. me. I would put on a dress and walk out in front of the audience and I would tell them about the dress and then I'd model it, go back and put another dress on. And then I went to Hollywood and I was invited to Marilyn Monroe's birthday. <laughs> and your stars you saw yes. at last. Yes. yes. And then to Rome and Gregory yes. Peck. In what you <laughs> deliberately call a romance, not an affair. Yes, just a romance. I was a very naive girl. I believe you have to have pride in yourself. I met Greg on the set of Roman Holiday and he very kindly invited me out and he said, I'm going to show you Rome. And he did and took me to dinner and was very charming. And then Audrey Hepburn left. She'd finished her part to make another movie. As you know, at the end of every movie, they have a breakup dinner. So I was invited to sit in Audrey Hepburn's chair with William Wilder on one side and Gregory Peck on the other. And he invited you to go to Paris with him. Yes. Greg said, now that I've finished Roman Holiday, come with me to Paris. I said, thank you very much, but I really have to move on. But we stayed friends, a delightful, charming, sincere gentleman, Gregory Peck. You had a choice of whether to go with him. Yes. But you felt drawn back to Australia, and especially your mother. Yes, because my mother had given up her life for me. I would not let her down, so I flew back to Australia. And you meet John Clifford, a man <laughs> who you thought was in looks an Australian Gregory Peck, and you two marry. <laughs> yes. 
Tell me what your father-in-law <laughs> said and did to you on your wedding day. Yes, I already had my school. Yes. And lots of students and the model agency, the first outside of London and New York. I wanted to be part of a family for the first time in my life. And I looked across this crowded room and seen John Clifford, who did look a lot like Greg Beck. On my wedding day, I remember my father-in-law patting me on the head, looking up at John and smiling and saying, don't worry, son. As soon as the children start coming, she'll want to give up her business. And I'm smiling and saying he patted to myself, you on the head absolutely mm. patted my head yes. and looked at john said don't worry son as soon as the children start coming she'll want to give up her business and i'm saying to myself no way <laughs> no way will i ever give up my business but you see in those days lee a woman's job was in the home yes she was supposed to stay at home have the children look after the children cook the meals, do the housework while the husband went out and worked or had a good time. In fact, you received angry, hostile calls yes, from people complaining about your lack of care for yes. your children and the fact that your <laughs> husband wasn't having Poor dinner. Poor John. Yes. Your husband. Why are you neglecting your husband? And why aren't you home looking up to your poor starving children? But there was food at home and I employed a nurse, I employed a housekeeper, and nobody starved. But, you know, I used to give my children a hard time, and I was insistent that they were well-mannered, and all the things my mother insisted that I follow through, I insisted that they did. And they used to object, but now I hear them telling my grandchildren exactly <laughs> the same things. <laughs> so, so many years go by, June, 60 years of your schools, 300,000 students, it's estimated. What has been your greatest desire for them as you've equipped them for their lives? <laughs> to feel happy in life and to be self-contented, to do well in life and not waste their time. Wherever I go, I could be anywhere. Ladies come up to me and gentlemen and say, Miss Daly, remember me? I did your course 50 years ago, 60 years ago. I know some of them myself. Do you? Yes, <laughs> yes. I do. And the students who come now, they say, oh, Miss Daly, my grandmother came to your school and my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Confidence is a big thing. Oh, self-confidence. Yes. To feel good about yourself, to be able to cope with life anywhere you are in the world. That's what my mother used to say. Junie, wherever you go in the world, you have to be acceptable. I wonder how much of that came from that painful side of your life I mentioned before mm. that did remain hidden for so long. Yeah. <laughs> Can you take us into that world yes. and why that was so painful? No one ever discussed with me about my father, and I didn't bring the subject up either. Your mum was a single mum. Absolutely, and that's why she had to stay at Watson's Creek with my grandparents so that I could be raised there. I often wondered who my father was, and when I came down to Sydney, I always pretended that I'd lived always in Sydney. People would say, why don't you write a book, June, about the early days of modelling? I started to do that, I realized I had to write about myself. So I started to face the reality of my life. And I grew up as June Skews and David Daly Watkins adopted me when my mother married David and we came to Sydney to live. Your mother had suggested that you needn't talk about your earlier days. How do you reflect no, on that? No, she never did. She just never talked to me about it. She never discussed 
who my father was. It was never, ever discussed by anybody. Should she have mentioned him? Oh, nowadays Spoken it about would that. have. Yes. yes, it would be. Yes. yes. When my mother died, I was teaching at my school in Dimmock's building in George Street, and one of the teachers came in and said, Miss Daly, there's a man outside who wants to meet you. And I went out. As soon as I saw him, I knew. From time to time, among the audience, when I was doing the mannequin parades, I'd be walking along the catwalk, and I'd say, well, there's that man again. And on other times, that man's back there. And I started to wonder who he was. It didn't surprise me when I went out to the reception area, and it was. I realized he said, I'm your father. And now that your mother is no longer, I want to look after you and take care of you. Then I did get to know him. I didn't like him. That must have been such a challenging experience to go through. Yes, and hurtful. Yes. Emotionally hurtful. John and I had gone to the Gold Coast for a holiday with our children. He invited me to go and meet his wife and two sons. And I thought, this will be really nice. I will have brothers. And he introduced me as his niece. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. Isn't that incredible? Painful. Yes, it was. I thought at last I'm going to have some relations. And you were still denied that? Yes. That's why it was for me I wanted to have children. Yes. And I had two boys and two girls and now seven grandchildren. But you see, Lee, the Lord has always played a part in my life. I used to think my grandma father he was my guiding light he was the one who's looked after me and now looking down from heaven and then i realized that it was all happening before my grandfather died anyway there was someone in my heart and soul and somebody there who seemed to guide me and lee still it's amazing and it wasn't until the 80s that you started to see that light yes, in your life of Christian yes. faith. Yes, and then I met by accident. It wasn't by accident that I met the Crossroads people, Malcolm and Sally Begby. It wasn't by accident. The Lord led me to them. The Lord led me to Youth with a Mission. I mean, I had a school in Hong Kong. I was walking down Pedder Street, and this lady stopped me, and she said, June, what are you doing in Hong Kong? And I said, well, I have a school here. What are you doing here, Norma? She said, I'm with Youth for the Mission. And she was the playgirl of Sydney. And she said, come and join us for our prayer meetings on Wednesday night. I did, and I became absolutely addicted. (laughs) (laughs) And they took me over to Lantau Island and dunked me in the South China Sea and and christened me. What a wonderful (laughs) story. Isn't that wonderful? Why do you think you so became addicted to this Christian faith? I didn't feel alone and lonely. And whatever happens in my life, being a Christian and loving the Lord, just gives me such comfort. I'm not alone anymore. I don't mind living alone. I want to do something that's worthwhile. And having met uh, Malcolm and Sally from crossroads. I travelled over to Bosnia and Herzegovina after the war there, twice taking goods. I remember the first time I'd raised quite a bit of money to take to the people in need over there. My family said, Nonna, you're so stupid to do that. 
you might be arrested for carrying that money with you. <laughs> and I put it in a belt around my waist and took it over to the people over there in Bosnia who needed it. We took goods there. And I've been Crossroads ambassador to now, I guess it's 16 years. What a wonderful work. Ah. What do you say about Jesus Christ, June? I just feel that he's part of my life and real. I feel the Lord. I just feel Jesus, part of my life. When these miracles happen, I know where it's coming from. Everybody has miracles every day in their life, but they just don't recognize them. They don't know that there's this miracle happening and waiting for them to take and make something of it. I say to our students, you know, you have to understand there are three parts of the human being. There's our body, which is the house we live in, so you must carry it well and tall and straight and with confidence. There's our mind, which is our control tower, which tells us what to do, tells us to listen, tells us how to speak, makes our ears listen. It is in control of us. And the third part is our soul. And it's a soul which gives us love, accepts love, gives love. It's what keeps us in peace. All those beautiful things that you can't buy. No. Can't buy that. No. June Daly Watkins, you're an absolute inspiration. As I said, your story is an epic, classic mm -hmm. Aussie story. I'm so glad Thank you've joined you. us. Thank, Thank you so much you. for coming in. Thank you, Lee, with lots of love. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.